You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Psalm 72, verses 1 to 4, and 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. Psalm 72, verses 1 to 4, of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and a woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been puring herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christina. Uh, very good morning, everyone. The Lord bless you. Uh, this morning, we are beginning a new sermon series on the topic of justice. Uh, justice is a really uh, big issue today. There's a lot of debate and uh, I think a lot of controversy over what justice is and how to achieve it. Uh, today, the word justice itself is viewed as incomplete. Right? By itself, the word justice doesn't quite provide that sense of credibility uh, that we're looking for. And so the word justice is often paired with another word uh, to kind of inspire us with that confidence. And so we have things like social justice, uh, environmental justice, gender justice, criminal justice, and so on. And some people have asked, isn't justice justice, uh, no matter what word you attach to it? But there's still a sense of dissatisfaction with this kind of old-fashioned way of looking at justice. Now, our church has historically been involved in what we call justice and mercy. This work began in Pekyo, uh, particularly among the poor and the elderly, uh, but that evolved into outreach to foreign workers and to children in institutional homes and so on. Uh, some of us have been involved at a personal or professional level with people with disability, uh, with prison ministry, with victims of abuse, uh, with broken families, fostering children, and so on. But having said all that, justice may not be something that we are all convinced about. Right? You may be someone who feels like justice is not for you. Right? Justice is for a certain kind of people. You may avoid justice altogether because you feel suspicious 
of the political, cultural agendas that are often intertwined with justice movements. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, living in this messy and broken world, how should we think of justice? How should we approach justice? And how should we do justice? So this morning, I want to lead us to recover a biblical understanding of justice that is grounded in the gospel. Uh, This will be a more topical sermon, uh, looking to answer four basic questions when it comes to justice. And I'll be drawing the answers from the two passages that we heard earlier. And these answers will also prepare us for the next two Sundays uh, when we really get into the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, my hope for these three weeks is that we as a church, as a church family, as a church body, that we would have hearts beating in sync over matters of justice, and that we also would be reaching out to those in need. So let's begin. Four questions towards recovering justice. Question number one, does justice matter? Recently, a friend of mine uh, recommended a movie to me. Uh, It's an action movie. It's about a very just civil servant uh, whose grown-up son gets kidnapped by a gang of murderous criminals. Now, at the end of the movie, uh, we discover that this adult son is actually in cahoots with this gang. It's been a whole ruse the whole time. So the hero tells his son to surrender himself, to turn himself in to the police. The son refuses. Then he tries to kill his father, the hero. And then this hero has his own son killed mercilessly. Sorry. The hero then walks away from his dead son. His eyes are wet, but he doesn't shed a tear. There's a sadness about that scene, but mostly there's a sense of justice. There's a sense of triumph. There's a sense of rightness about the whole scene. And then the movie ends. Now, I found this ending very unsettling, right? Is this really what justice looks like? Then I realized that this movie, it's not a Hollywood movie, it actually comes from a country where those related to political leaders, they often get away with their crimes, right? There's rampant corruption in that country. And so in such a context, I realized why such a movie would be so well-received, because this is the kind of justice the people are looking for justice that is blind, justice that doesn't discriminate, justice that is mercilessly enforced even upon your own family members. And I thought, what if different cultures have different notions of justice? I mean, look at Hollywood, right? Hollywood promotes its own brand of justice. For example, there's a very popular movie about a man who goes on a killing spree because someone killed his beloved dog, right? And revenge is celebrated as justice. Now, what if our ideals about justice are actually shaped more by our culture and by our experiences and perhaps by what the political parties we support have to say about certain issues than by the Word of God? Now, unfortunately, I do think that that is often the case. Now, we come to the Bible, And we find that justice is all about returning to the way things are meant to be. It's about having things as it should be. Right? Justice is ultimately not about punishment, although that's a big part, but it's about restoration. Justice in the Bible is holistic. 
And it's meant to give us a sense of hope. Now this morning, one of the passages we're looking at is Psalm 72. And it begins with a cry to God saying, Give the king your justice, O God. Now this first line is a prayer for an ability upon the king to do justice the way God intends justice to be done. Now there's a realization that there's a difference between God's idea of justice and other kinds of justice. And we get the sense that the only way to truly understand justice is by looking to God, because God is the God of justice. Now the whole verse reads, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Now this is so insightful, because many times, as Christians, when we think about justice, we think about it like this. Right? We think of justice and righteousness as two very separate, very different things. There's still some overlap, but it's not that much. Righteousness, we find, emphasizes faith, but justice emphasizes work. We connect righteousness to the saving work of Jesus Christ, but we connect justice to the suffering experienced by people around us. And so righteousness is a word that we associate with the Christian religion, but justice is a word that we associate with the real world, a world of suffering. And ultimately, we may think of righteousness as flowing from our holiness before God, but justice as flowing from our love for others. Now, in other words, as Christians, we may often think of righteousness as something we offer God, but justice as something we offer people. And because of that, we have a tendency to view justice as perhaps less important, as secondary to righteousness. But this is how Psalm 72 presents justice. Justice and righteousness are just about one and the same. In fact, this is not only how Psalm 72 looks at it, but much of the Bible looks at justice and righteousness in this same way. The Bible uses words like justice and righteousness interchangeably, right? They are like synonymous in the Bible. And the reason why justice and righteousness are so closely intertwined is because that is a reflection of who God is. Psalm 68 verse 5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. We ask the question, who is God in his holiness? Who is God upon his heavenly throne? He is a protector and provider for the vulnerable. Our holy, righteous God is a God of justice. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, we heard this in the call of worship. Uh, it says this about God, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Not only are all of God's ways righteous and good, but all of God's ways are justice. Just and righteous is he. People, should justice matter to Christians? The answer is yes. Justice matters because God in his righteousness is the God of justice. Now, this is the God we worship. And if this is the God we worship, justice 
cannot be something that some Christians are passionate about. Justice cannot just be another church program. If we love God, if we love who He is, then justice is something we must also love. Justice must also be something that we actively pursue. Justice must become more and more connected with the life of righteousness that we are pursuing. Just as we would want to grow in our worship of God, you know, fleeing from sin, growing in holiness, all this must necessarily include growing in our commitment to and our love for justice. So does justice matter? Yes, because our righteous God is a just God. Now to question number two. Is justice my problem? Now obviously the answer I'm going to give you is yes. Right? There's no way I'm going to say no. Justice is not your problem, right? Justice is our problem. But I still want to address this question. Why? Because I think for many of us, uh, the issue of justice is a source of shame, right? There are people around you whom you know are very involved in justice. They're very passionate about justice. And in contrast, you might be someone who is not doing very much, nor do you feel very much um, about matters of justice. Yet, you still get that sense, that expectation that you should be doing something, that you should be concerned. If not, something must be wrong with you. And when the church, for example, challenges you to get involved in justice, there's a sense of like helplessness, lostness, inadequacy. You feel like you don't have anything much to offer. This is not your thing. And I, I want to just address this sense of helplessness, this sense of inadequacy, because I think it's when we feel helpless and inadequate, that's when we start to ask, is justice really my problem? Right? Shouldn't I just leave justice to those who are passionate, to those who have some ability, some resources? Now, we look at the Old Testament. Clearly, God intends every Israelite to be involved in justice. Now, that's why the law that God gives all of Israel doesn't just give instructions on how to worship God, but the law also includes commandments on admin administrating justice, right? So if someone steals something from you, this is what you must do. If your bull kills your neighbor's bull, this is what you should do, right? The law contains all these detailed instructions on how the Israelites are to in address injustice. Then we look at Psalm 72. Psalm 72, we are told, is written by King Solomon, but... You know, if you look at the rest of the psalm, you realize that Solomon was probably only recording uh, for us a prayer that his father, King David, prayed for him. Uh, we look at the final verse of the psalm. It says, the prayers of David are ended. So Psalm 72, while recorded by King Solomon, it was probably a prayer by King David. Now, as David prays this prayer over his son, he's clearly praying that above everything else, his son would be a just king. The first two verses of Psalm 72 says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he, may the king, judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. To David's understanding, it seems like the main duty of the king is not winning wars and battles. It's not about making the nation prosperous. But the main duty of the king is to administer justice. And I think his son, King Solomon, believes in that so strongly that when he builds his royal palace 
in 1 Kings chapter 7, it's recorded for us that King Solomon made the, the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. So King Solomon saw his throne room, right? That would be the place where he would rule the nation from, right? He saw it primarily as a place where he would pronounce judgment. And he believed this so strongly that he even named this throne, uh, this throne room, the hall of judgment, right? The king's main role is to judge and to administer justice. Now, because the God of Israel is a God of justice, the king of Israel must also be a king of justice. And so you realize when you read the stories of the different kings, when God appoints a king, that man is usually anointed with oil, a symbol of being filled with God's Holy Spirit. And that's because justice is so important, it requires God himself to administer, to, to reach God's standards of justice. So Israel's king of justice must also be filled with God's spirit of justice. So people, when we, what we see is that justice is a kingly responsibility. Yes, everyone in Israel was expected to live justly and to address injustice in line with the law of God. But at the end of the day, the final authority, the final responsibility falls on the king to judge between the innocent and the guilty and to administer justice so that things are the way they are meant to be. Justice is a kingly responsibility. And so if you are someone who is struggling with justice, you should find this very comforting. If you feel helpless and powerless, if you feel like you don't have the authority to address the injustice around you, you're probably right to feel that way. You don't have in yourself that kingly authority. That's why even in the New Testament, Paul writes in Romans 13 about the government, that these governmental rulers are God's servants to avenge wrongdoing and injustice. Justice is a ruler's responsibility. It's a kingly responsibility, and it requires kingly authority. Now, some of you are already in those positions of authority. If you are a father, for example, you are the head of your household, you are responsible to preserve justice at home. If you are a boss or an employer, you are responsible to preserve justice in your organization. If you are a teacher with authority over students, or if you are a team leader with authority over your department, and of course in the church as well, for those of us who are pastors and leaders, we too are to uphold justice within the church. So is justice my problem? Yes, it is. But justice is also a kingly responsibility and it requires a kingly authority. And that's something I want to come back to at the end of the sermon. Now, on to question number three. What does justice look like? Now, today, when it comes to doing justice, a lot of emphasis is placed on the kind of lingo you use, uh, the movements that you support, the kind of things you post on social media, the kind of businesses you patronize, things like that. Now, some of these things are good things, but doing justice is way more than just posting your support for certain causes on social media. So then, what does justice look like? Now, I want to bring us to Psalm 146 for a little bit. Uh, these verses are talking about God, and it says, God executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. 
the Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. Now, these verses describe how God's justice looks like. You would realize that there are two aspects to God's justice. The underlying words uh, that we saw earlier, they show how God's justice involves raising up those who are downtrodden. But the word in red also shows us how God's justice involves bringing down those who do injustice. Now, Mark Boda, in his book, um, After God's Own Heart, he makes this observation about this psalm. He says, This list reveals that the maintenance of justice has both a positive and a negative aspect. The main focus is the positive action of upholding the cause of the oppressed, represented in actions that rectify, that address the plight of those who are vulnerable within the society. However, there is also a negative aspect that is frustrating the schemes of the wicked who threaten the cause of the oppressed. Now, in other words, Mark Boda points out that there are two aspects to God's justice. There's a positive aspect where God provides for the needy, He delivers the oppressed, He protects the vulnerable, He restores the rejected. But there's also a negative aspect. And this is where God fights for the downtrodden. This is where He brings the oppressor to ruin. Now, we come back to Psalm 72, and we see the same two aspects of justice. Here's verses 2 and 4. May the king judge your people and your poor. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Now again, the underlying words reflect the positive aspect of justice. The people are judged, the poor are defended, the needy children are delivered. But the word in red highlights the negative aspect of justice where the oppressor is crushed. So again, what does justice look like? There are two aspects to justice, the positive and the negative. Justice is both protective and punitive. Justice is both compassion to the oppressed and warfare against the oppressor. And what this means is that when you are, let's say, on your way to lunch, and you see a group of foreign workers under the hot sun, and you decide to buy cold drinks for them. Now, in God's eyes, that's not just being nice. That's justice. When you hear, sorry, when you come across a beggar, and you decide to put some money into their hands, in God's eyes, that's not doing something because you feel bad for the person. That's justice. When you hear a child in your neighborhood getting verbally abused and you hear glassware being thrown and smashed and you call the police, in God's eyes, that's not being capable, right, or being a busybody. That's justice. Now, you may be more involved in the positive, protective aspect of justice. You may be more involved in the negative, more reactive aspect of justice. Now, either way, you are doing justice. And we must grow in those other aspects of justice that we may not be doing. 
Yet we must also be very careful about criticizing one another for not being, uh, for not doing justice the way that I would do it. Justice is not one-dimensional. And so we want to be patient and humble in encouraging one another towards justice. And we must recognize that God has also placed us in different situations so that we might do justice in a unique way. So what does justice look like? Justice is not one-dimensional, but it involves caring for people, whether through positive, protective ways or negative, reactive ways. Now that brings us to our final question, question number four. Where does injustice come from? There are often two extremes when it comes to understanding injustice. On one extreme, injustice is just the unfortunate side effect of living in a society. Injustice is a necessary evil. In order for there to be prosperity, there must also be poverty. And so the best we can do is to try and to provide for these unfortunate victims of a society that is primarily concerned with progress and with prosperity. Now, on the other extreme, injustice is viewed as a systematic evil that the rich and the powerful have embedded into the very structure of society. And so to, com to combat injustice, you've got to rewrite the laws of the land. You've got to make loud the stories of those who are being exploited. You've got to educate the public on the sufferings of the vulnerable in our midst. Now, I'm in no way endorsing or rejecting either extreme, all right? I just want to point out that the way that we deal with injustice is going to be shaped by where we believe injustice comes from. Let me say that again. The way we deal with injustice is going to be shaped by where we believe injustice comes from. Now, the Bible provides a very different perspective on where injustice comes from. We look at the story of David and Bathsheba from 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm sure many of us are familiar with this story. Uh, King David remains in the palace while the rest of his army goes to war. As his army is out fighting for their nation, David has an affair with the wife of one of his soldiers, and the woman gets pregnant. Now, in order to cover up the affair, David tries to get the soldier to come home and to sleep with his wife. The soldier refuses. How could he return to the comfort of his wife while the rest of his comrades are still risking their lives on the battlefield? David realizes plan A isn't going to work, so he switches to plan B. He conspires with the commander of the army to have this soldier pushed to the front line so that he would be killed in action. And David's plan is a success. When that happens, David promptly swoops in to take the pregnant widow as his wife and then the whole story, the whole affair, and the whole crime gets covered up. Right? That's the story in a nutshell. This is a story of gross injustice on so many levels. Now, when some people look at this story, they say, you know, this is what happens when there's not enough checks and balances in place. Some others look at this story and they say, you know, even if there were checks and balances, who is going to prosecute the king? The problem is that there is a king. Right? It's better to have a democracy so that the ruler is answerable to the people. Now, there are merits and there are good things from these responses, these reflections, but do they get to the root of the problem? Do they answer where these injustices come from? Now, we look at verses 3 to 4, and here we gain insight into the source of David's unjust actions. 
Let me read it for us. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof, of a, wom- uh, from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, how did David's unjust actions come about? It all began when David saw something that was not his, it's another man's wife, and he coveted her beauty. He coveted her nakedness. And he lusted after her. That's where it all started. It started in David's heart. Yes, the injustices that David committed were enabled by a lack of checks and balances. His injustices were empowered by his position and his stature as the king. But the root of his injustices was his own sinful heart. And out of the coveting of his heart flowed adultery, flowed the robbery of another man's wife, flowed deception, and flowed the murder of an innocent, unsuspecting, and loyal soldier. But every one of these injustices began in David's heart. Now James says something similar in the New Testament. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. David desired and did not have, so he murdered Bathsheba's husband. It all began in David's heart. Now, people, to, to James, the root of injustice is our wayward passions. It's our sinful desires. The things we covet in our heart of hearts. And when we can't have those things, that's when injustice arises. Because that's when we lie. That's when we steal. That's when we are willing to kill even and we trample over others all so that we can get what we want. People, the source of injustice is a sinful heart. We can put checks and balances in place. We could impose more severe penalties against injustices. We could even overthrow corrupt systems and structures. But the sinful heart will still find a way. As long as the heart is ruled by its sinful passions, as long as the heart covets after things that it cannot have, we will always have injustice. No matter the laws, no matter the consequences, no matter the structures or systems in place, the problem of injustice is a problem of the heart. But what can change our sinful hearts? Hundreds of years after David and Bathsheba, um, a descendant of David is born. And as he comes of age, he is anointed, not with oil, but nevertheless, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And as the Spirit falls upon him, God himself declares that just like the kings of old, this man is his son. This man is the royal son. And the first thing this newly anointed king does is to endure temptation in the desert for 40 days. His heart is tested, and those sinful desires, those roots of injustice are not found in him. 
Now, shortly after coming out from the desert, this king enters a synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stands up to read the scriptures, and this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This king, after reading this, sits down and he says to the people, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus comes to us as both the God of justice and the king of justice. Jesus was anointed with the spirit of justice and he embraced his kingly responsibility of doing justice by both lifting up the downtrodden and tearing down the oppressor. Jesus served the poor. He set free the demon-possessed. He healed those whose conditions meant that they were outcasts and subject to injustice in their society, people like the blind, the crippled, the leper. But not only that, Jesus spoke up against the religious oppression of that day. Jesus' earthly life was clearly a life dedicated to bringing justice, to returning things to the way things were meant to be. But Jesus dies, and his reign of justice is cut short. Now, Jesus knows that the root of injustice is our sinful heart. And until our hearts are changed, injustice will continue to flourish. You see, no matter how powerful or powerless you may be, no matter how rich or poor you are, no matter how able-bodied or disabled you might be, all of us are guilty of injustice. All of us have treated people, treated others, as though they were less than the image of God. All of us have entertained sinful desires in our hearts and have then lied and stolen and fought and cut off people from our lives so that we could lay hold of what we wanted. People, all of us have played a real part in furthering injustice in this world. But Jesus goes to the cross to show every one of us mercy. The king and the judge of all the earth, he takes the place of the guilty and the condemned, and he dies in our place. And what Jesus did for us, people, is heart-changing. It is his love, in light of the punishment we deserve, in light of our wickedness, that leads us to repentance. And That's where we admit that, yes, Lord, I am unjust. Yes, Lord, I have committed injustices. Yes, Lord, I deserve your righteous decree of death. But then I see what Jesus has done for me. And now I want my life to change. I want to count others as more significant than myself. I, I want to hate the sinful cravings in my heart that lead me to injustice. And instead, I want, I want a concern for the poor. I, I want a compassion for the foreigner. I want an ability towards the disabled. I want a zeal in fighting for the oppressed. Jesus' mercy at the cross changes our hearts. But not only that, because Jesus rose from the grave, 
And He sent the Holy Spirit upon each and every one of us. For those of us who identify with Jesus' death in our place, for those of us who are looking to Jesus to change our hearts, we have received the Holy Spirit. Jesus has anointed us with the Spirit of justice. Now, the kingly responsibility for justice is ours. Now, we have a kingly authority and ability to carry out that responsibility. And so even if you feel helpless and inadequate, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, empowers you. He equips you to lift up the downtrodden and to tear down the oppressor. And until Jesus returns to totally eliminate every shadow of sin and injustice in all creation, we, filled with the King, the kingly Spirit of Jesus, we can live out what it says in James chapter 1. That religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. By the mercy shown to us at the cross and by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, would we be a people who do justice, who love kindness, and who walk humbly with our God. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Now, before we pray, could I just invite us to just stand to our feet and let's come before the Lord and let's do business with Him just for a little while. People, as you stand before your Father, before your Savior, and before your King, would you bring your heart before Him? Would you confess afresh how deeply you need Him? How you need a sense of the Father's righteous justice. How you need a sense of Jesus as the King and Judge of all the earth. How you need that spirit of Jesus, that spirit of justice to fill you, to empower you, that He would be your trust, that He would be your strength. Come before the Lord and confess these things before Him. Lord, how we need you. As you come before Him, would you also come in confession of your own sin, how you may have stood by while others were suffering injustices around you, how your hand was not outstretched, how your heart was not warm, how your interests were for yourself, not for these other ones. Jesus, how we need you.
Our Father, we confess, Lord, how easily and how quickly we shut ourselves off, Lord, from the hardships, the suffering, and the injustices that others around us are facing. Lord, we have failed tragically, Lord, because we have centered our interests, we've centered our joys, we've centered our hopes, Lord, all upon ourselves, Lord. Lord, refusing to risk any of those things, Lord, our, our hands, we've kept it in our pockets, Lord, our hearts, we've kept it deep in our chest. Lord, our, our tongues and our mouths have remained closed and silent. And Lord, we look around us, Lord. There's such a brokenness, Lord, in the world around us. Lord, even within our church, even in neighboring Pekyo, Lord, we see poverty. We see the elderly being neglected, isolated, left alone. We see foreign workers being mistreated as though they were less human than any of us. We hear of children who have to be removed from their families because their circumstances were just so oppressive. Lord, we hear so many things, Lord, going around us. Lord, where clearly Satan is having his way in this world, Lord. Where sin is going rampant. Lord, like we read in the book of Judges, Lord, there is blood that is piling up in our land. Father, these things grieve your heart so deeply, Lord. You are a God of justice. You love mercy. You love kindness. You love showing grace upon grace, even to the most wicked of sinners. But our injustices, our transgressions, against your holiness, against your righteousness, against your justice, it still, Lord, grieves you. Father, we ask, O Lord, that you would renew in us a heart that is soft. Renew in us, Lord, an ability that comes through your Spirit. But above everything, we ask that you would renew faith, Lord, a trust in Jesus Christ, that our Saviour, who redeemed us and who pulled us out of the pit, Lord, at the cost of His own life, demonstrating mercy upon mercy for sinners like us. Lord, that even now, He is transforming us, that He is making us more and more like Himself. Our hearts are changing. Lord, our hands are becoming more and more subject to the will of our God and Father. Lord, our feet are becoming ready to go. And our tongues are being loosed, Lord. Not for our own sakes, but for the sakes of those around us who need a voice to be spoken on their behalf. So Father, we ask, Lord, for mercy, but we also ask for faith, God. Lord, renew us, fill us with your Spirit. And Lord, as we go from here, even with people in our midst, in our community, in our church, help us to love and to show justice. And for those outside of this church as well, the countless, innumerable cases of injustice, Lord, we pray that wherever you've placed us, Lord, whatever we, have, we are witnessing, we are hearing, and that we know about, Lord, Father, teach us to act in justice, Lord. 
teach us to do what is good and loving and right in your eyes, Lord. Give us that kingly authority and that kingly ability to carry out that kingly responsibility they've given to us. So we bring our hearts to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg. Thank you.